It's going to be Joel 3, 18 to 21 for a sermon I've entitled, In That Day. Why don't you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will remain, or will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. On May 14th next year, Jews from around the world will celebrate the 75th anniversary of the establishment of the modern state of Israel. Now I say the modern state because Israel existed as a nation for over 1,500 years until it was destroyed by the Romans, after which the Jews were scattered across the world, living in exile these last 1,400 years. Now during those long centuries, the hope was always that someday they would return. So the prayer for Jews every Passover was, next year in Jerusalem. Now for most Jews, it remained just a dream, but some worked to make it a reality. And one of the most important people that came in that Zionist movement was Theodore Herzl. Now Herzl was an unlikely pioneer for this movement. He was born in Hungary in 1860, and he died in 1904 at just 44 years of age. He was raised in a family that wasn't particularly religious, Indeed, his father was part of what was known as the Neolog Jewish movement, which Orthodox Jews viewed with suspicion and disdain, much in the same way that we would look at liberal Protestant churches today. Indeed, like mainline Christian churches, this Jewish group denied much of what was considered essential to their faith. So Herzl was a secular Jew who didn't even speak Hebrew or Yiddish, so he was not motivated by religious convictions to work for the establishment of a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. Rather, it was his fear of the rising anti-Semitism that made him a Zionist. In 1894, a captain of of the French army, uh, Alfred Dreyfus, was convicted of selling military secrets to the Germans and sentenced to life in prison. A few years later, he was exonerated and released, but at the time of the trial that was going on, it was splitting the French society. Some supported Dreyfus, while others saw him as just another example of a Jew who couldn't be trusted, disloyal to the country in which he lived. While he was working as a journalist at that time, Herzl heard the crowds in the streets of Paris shouting, Death to the Jews! What seemed obvious to Herzl was that everywhere people hated Jews. And so he became obsessed with finding a way to overcome anti-Semitism. His first thought was that Jewish people, all Jewish people, should simply convert to Christianity. But then he came to realize that for many in that day, their religious hate or their hatred towards the Jews was not based on religion. The German philosopher Karl Dürer argued that the Jewish problem was a problem of race, moral, and cultures, not so much religion. Well, many pushing Jew hatred at the time said the only answer was to rid Europe of the Jews by sending them back to Palestine. And actually, Herzl agreed. He thought that anti-Semitism could not be defeated or cured, but only avoided. And the best way to do that was by having the Jews return to Palestine to establish their own nation. Now, it might surprise you to know that most Jewish leaders at the time opposed the movement of Zionism. Some of those who were more secular argued that Jews needed to assimilate more, even more in the societies in which they lived, rather than withdraw from it. Others, the Orthodox, argued that the Bible teaches that Jews are only to return to the land after the Messiah comes. And so to do so before our time would be sinful. Now Herzl worked 
tirelessly for eight years trying to convince both political and religious leaders, including the Pope, to support the plan for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. He died in 1904 at the age of 44, but if he had lived to 88 years of age, he would have seen the fulfillment of his dream. And what a glorious fulfillment he expected it would be. Writing in a pamphlet, he uh, wrote, entitled uh, Judenstadt, he said this, I believe that a wondrous generation of Jews will spring up into existence. The Maccabeans will rise again. Let me repeat once more my opening words. The Jew who wish for us, uh, Jews who wish for a state will have it. We shall live at last as free men on our own soil and die peacefully in our own homes. The world will be freed by our liberty, enriched by our wealth, magnified by our greatness, and whatever we attempt there, will, uh, there to accomplish for our own welfare will react powerfully and beneficially for the good of humanity. Now, Theodore Herzl was right about what the reestablishment of the nation of Israel would become. But he was wrong as to its timing. He thought it would happen in his day, but according to the prophet Joel, it will only happen in that day after Israel's enemies have been defeated and Jesus reigns in Jerusalem. Well, it is to this future day of blessing for the land and the people of Israel that we want to turn our attention this morning. So to prepare our hearts to hear God's word, let's pray and ask him for his grace. Our Father and God, you do pray for grace and mercy. Help me as I preach this with my voice and help those who are here to listen so that we may be transformed by your word. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the book of Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart grow sick, but longing fulfilled is a tree of life. The Jews had hoped for centuries to be back in the land of Israel, and that longing was fulfilled for many since 1948. Some three million Jews have returned to their own ancient homeland, about one million of them coming from the former Soviet Union. But Herzl's dream was not just that the Jews would live on their own soil, but that they would die peacefully in their own homes. And the modern nation of Israel has not known peace, but war in its 74 years of history. Eight wars, to be exact. There was the War of Independence in 1948. There was the Suez Canal Crisis in 1956. Another 10 years later, the Six-Day War in 1967, the Yom Kippur War in 1973, that one they almost lost. Throw in a couple of invasions of uh, Lebanon, two Palestinian infadas, several military operations against the Gaza Strip, and you realize that Israel certainly has not arrived at that time that Isaiah spoke about when nation would no longer lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Indeed, the angel told Daniel that wars will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. Now, one of the books I have in my library is entitled The Missing Peace. It was written by Dennis Ross, who was a negotiator, Middle East negotiator, uh, during the Clinton administration. And uh, the title of the book is a play on words because peace is missing from the Middle East, but he was talking about what he thought the missing piece was. But he missed what the missing piece was. The missing piece is Christ. It's only going to be after the Jews accept Jesus as their Messiah and he begins to rule over the world from Jerusalem that Israel will finally experience peace. Now last week we learned about the war to end all wars when Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven to wage war against the Antichrist and the northern army aligned with him. These last verses here speak of that time of blessing and vindication that will come to Israel afterwards. Well, what do we see in the text? We see four things. First of all, we see the fertile land. He speaks of a fertile land. That's verse 18. Secondly, a waste and a wilderness. 
that's verse 19. Third, an eternal city, that's verse 20. And finally, enemies repaid, and that's 21. By the way, have you ever heard that, uh, that term, Fertile Crescent? Where is that? Well, that's the area of the Middle East where archaeologists believe agriculture first developed, especially around the area of the Tigris and Euphrates River. Now, today, as a result of soil erosion, uh, much of that area is actually desert. Do you know which countries have the most fertile soil today? Well, the top 10 are Bangladesh, Denmark, the Ukraine, Moldova, India, Hungary, Rwanda, strangely enough, Camaros, Togo, and Gambia. Now, the country of Ukraine is near the top. For centuries, they were the breadbasket of of Europe, and even today, they're one of the largest exporters of grain to the world. They're the largest exporter of sunflower oil, one of the largest of corn and rye and barley. Egypt, Turkey, Bangladesh, Iran all import lots of grain from Ukraine. A number of African countries are also dependent upon Ukraine for food, and that's why this war is putting millions at risk of starvation. Well, Israel has an agricultural industry as well, but only 20% of their land is fertile, and half of it is desert. Like much of the Middle East, lack of water is the big issue, but here the prophet tells us that in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor website, most of the United States has experienced drought this last year. Some states like California and Texas and the Great Plains states, it's been severe droughts. Lake Mead behind Hoover Dam has dropped 170 feet, so much so that they're starting to find the bodies that the mob dumped there over the years. Now Psalm 68, 6 says this, God makes a home for the lonely. He leads the prisoner into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Well, after Jesus redeems the people of Israel, they'll no longer be rebellious, and so they'll no longer have to live in a parched land. Then they will live in a land flowing with milk and honey, or as the prophet describes it here, a, a, a land where the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. You know, in Ezekiel 36, 34 to 36, God promises that after he redeems that nation, quote, he says, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. Then you will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around, all about, will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruins and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. And that bottom half of the country that's all desert, Isaiah promises this, in Isaiah 35, 1-5, it says, the wilderness, will be a des- the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Uh, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Now, promises like this made to the people in Joel's day when they had just seen their land devastated by locusts, stripped bare, would mean everything. Well, because Israel today diverts the majority of the water that comes from the Jordan River before it gets to the Dead Sea, that body is drying up and shrinking. When I was back there, uh, there back in 2000, you could see docks that were, used to be at the edge of the water that were some 200 uh, yards 
um, from uh, the waterline. By the way, I don't know why they have docks there anyways. I mean, it's not like you can fish in the Dead Sea. There's a reason it's called dead. There's nothing that lives in it. Well, but it's not going to stay that way. Joel tells us that uh, not only will all the brooks of Judah flow with water, but listen to this. Also, a spring will go forth from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Now, we learn from this passage and other passages in the Bible that when Jesus sits on his throne in Jerusalem, there's actually going to be a spring of water that flows out from before his throne in the temple. Now, Ezekiel talks about this in his vision about that future temple. He says this a little longer passage. I want to hear what he, how he describes it. He says, Water was flowing from under the threshold of the house, meaning the house of the Lord, towards the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house and from the south of the altar. He brought me out to the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate, which is the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the side out. So it's coming out just slowly. When the man went towards the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits and he led me to the water and the water reached up to the ankles. Again, he measured another thousand and he led me through the water and the water reached up to the knees. Again, he measured a thousand, and it, uh, the water reached up to the loins. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough water to swim in it, water that could not be forded. Now, isn't that interesting? Because it comes out as a trickle. It doesn't seem to add anything along the way, and yet it gets greater in volume. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the riverbank. Now, when I had returned, and behold, the river uh, at the riverbank, there was very many trees one on each side, one side and the other. And then he said to me, these are waters are the ones that go to the eastern region and also go down to the Arabah, that's the desert, and they will go towards the sea, meaning the Dead Sea, uh, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea will become fresh. It will be made, or it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And they will be, there will be many fish, very many fish, in those waters and in others. And they will become fresh so that everything will live uh, so that everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi to Enagam. And they will have a place for spreading their nets. Their, fi- they will, or their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish in the Great Sea, meaning in the Mediterranean. Very many. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. But the, by the rivers and its banks on one side and on the other will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. And their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. You know, there's a parallel that you can draw here. It says the wicked live in a parched land. But you know what? The wicked also live a parched life, don't they? And until God floods their life with his spirit, They produce nothing. If you're not a Christian, that's what you need. You need the Holy Spirit to renew your life and to start to bring that joy. Jesus said that that when the Spirit came, it would be like a fountain within. We sing songs like that for the kids. It's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling in my soul. In other words, the joy for the Christian comes from the inside out. For the non-Christian, it's all about happiness. What's happening to me? And if the outward things give way or aren't pleasant, the joy is gone. Well, in contrast to Israel, which will become a fertile land, we're told that Egypt and Edom will become a waste and a wilderness. Look what it says in 19. It says, Egypt 
will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. Now, if Israel's fertility is a sign of God's blessing on that nation, then becoming a waste or a desolate wilderness would be a sign of God's disfavor, indeed, his curse. Now, the fate of Egypt in the end times is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 19, where God says that he will cause that country to actually break out in a civil war. Listen to what he says. So I will incite Egyptian against Egyptian, and they will each fight against his brother and against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kitty, uh, kingdom. It says, he will strike the Nile, the source of the life of Egypt. Verses 5 to 8 of that chapter says this, the waters from the sea will dry up, and the rivers will become parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench, and the streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and the rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament. And all those who cast their line into the Nile will mourn. And those who spread nets on the water will pine away. But you know what's amazing? is God's ultimate purpose for Egypt is not to destroy them, but actually to save them. Because that same chapter goes on to say this in verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar near its border. It'll become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they, meaning the Egyptians, will cry out because of oppressors and he, the Lord, will send them a savior and a champion who will deliver them. It's not just that God's going to send Jesus to rescue the Jews. He's going to send them to rescue the Egyptians as well. Thus, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and they will even worship with sacrifice and offerings and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing so that they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hand, and Israel, my inheritance. That will be an amazing display of grace. But the Bible says, Behold both the kindness and the severity of the Lord. Now, Egypt is going to experience severity and then kindness, but this text tells us that Edom is going to experience only severity. Why? Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they've shed innocent blood. Charles Ryrie, if you have one of his study Bibles, in the note in Isaiah 34, 5, talking about Edom, he says that Edom represents all estranged unbelievers. The argument that he makes is the same that a lot of commentators make. It goes like this. Well, Edom was just another name for Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. We're told in the book of Hebrews that we're not to be like Esau because he was a godless man. So they reason like this. Edom equals Esau. Esau equals godless. Therefore, Edom represents all godless people. But let me ask you a question. If Edom represents all godless people, then what do the Egyptians represent in Joel's text? I don't have time to set forth the case here again, but in several of my sermons I've done in the past, I've argued that the Edomites, it does not refer to all godless people. Rather, when the prophet speaks of Edom and the Edomites, he's speaking of the physical descendants of Esau who dwell in the area that was once known as Edom, 
which is in the southern part of Jordan today, where many of the Palestinians live. Now, if you're interested in hearing the case I set forth on this, on why I think the Palestinians are indeed the descendants of Esau, whose end-time destruction is prophesied in a number of places in the Old Testament, you can find on our sermon audio page, if you put in the key word on, in our, uh, in our uh, web page, uh, Edom, you'll find three or four t- uh, texts where I dealt with this, sermons. But I'll, I'll give you just one right now from the book of Malachi that combines the idea of Edom being a barren, parched land with the fact that they're forever under God's wrath. Listen to what it says in Malachi uh, 1, 1-4. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, and this is Israel speaking, How have you loved us? God responds, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed it an inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build up, but I'll tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people towards whom the Lord is indignant forever. It's because of their murderous hatred towards the Jews that God will be angry with them forever. But while Edom will be desolate forever, by contrast, we have an eternal city. Look what it says in verse 20. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations. My wife was all set to go to Rome a couple of weeks ago. My son Nathan had some time off before he started his new job, and so he asked his mother if she would like to go to visit Italy. Oh yes, that would be great. She's been longing to go there for some time. So Nathan bought tickets and told them they were going to leave. 24 hours later, he cancels the tickets to Rome. Instead, he purchases tickets to Vietnam. But Suzanne's husband vetoed that idea, so they settled on going to Korea, South Korea instead. Now, Rome is called the Eternal City, but Jerusalem is the Eternal City. Now, most Christians believe that we're going to spend eternity off somewhere in heaven, but the Bible makes it clear that we're actually going to live forever on a renewed earth with the city of Jerusalem as the capital of Christ's worldwide kingdom. Now, speaking of this future blessing after Israel's rescued and redeemed by Jesus, their Messiah, the prophet Zephaniah exhorts the people and says, Shout for joy, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear no disaster, no more. In that day, it'll be said of Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now, isn't it interesting? We're always told to rejoice in the Lord, but here we're told the Lord will rejoice in them. You have to understand, God finds great joy in bringing joy to his people. Jesus said this. He said, said, I want my joy to be in you, and I want your joy to be full. Christianity produces joy. Because for the first time, you're right with your God. You know your purpose in life. You know where you're going. You know why you're here. All the big questions have been answered. Oh, whether you're going to get married or not, or where you're going to live, or whether you'll be arrested and put in prison. Little things like that are not figured out. But all the big questions are answered. 
He says this, he says, He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They will come from you, O Zion. The reproach of the exiles is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, even at that time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord, Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20. In Zephaniah, God said, at that time I'll deal with your oppressors. Joel echoes this truth in the last verse when he says this. He tells us his, the enemies will be repaid. Verse 21. Now remember, God told Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. Israel is the chosen nation. The Jews are the chosen people. Now we know from Romans 9 to 11 that the promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants that they would be heirs of salvation did not mean all of Abraham's physical descendants would inherit the promises. Indeed, not only the Jews, but Arabs physically descend from Abraham. The true children of God are those Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in the Son of God, Abraham's God, Jesus Christ. So Israel as a nation will trust in Jesus when he returns. It says in Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over them, over him like the bitter weeping over firstborn. In other words, they're going to weep because they're going to realize they'd have rejected their Messiah for 2,000 years. Well, that's mercy. What about Justice. I mean, the psalmist asks this in 79.10, Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. After redeeming his people in grace, Christ will repay Israel's enemies in wrath. As it says in the last verse here, it says, And I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Psalm 58.10 promises that the righteous will be glad when they're avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Jesus is not only the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, he's also the warrior king who wreaks vengeance against those who hurt his people. In In our day, Jews may be hated and Christians may be hounded, but in that day, when he comes... Israel will be avenged and all God's people will be exalted to live with the Lord who dwells in Zion. Let me ask you a question. Are you going to be there? Are you on the winning side? Have you turned from your sins? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you made him your rock of salvation? You know, it says... In Isaiah 62, 6-7, that God has placed watchmen on the walls. And he's talking about people actually praying. And he says this, You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourself, and give him, meaning God, no rest, as we pray for him, until he establishes and makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. That's what it means when we pray, Thy kingdom come. I don't know about you folks, but when I look around, when I read the news, I think we are getting very close to this return. 
I know every generation thinks that, but one generation is going to be right. And it may be ours. One of the things that Jesus said would characterize the church at the end was people would be asleep. Be awake. Be ready for when the bridegroom returns. May God give you the grace. May he give you the grace. Let's pray. Our Father and God, these days are going to be upon us quickly. We know one thing. We're 2,000 years closer to it uh, and almost uh, 2,500 years closer than when Joel prophesied this. So, Father and God, we pray that you'd help us to be prepared by getting the gospel out and getting our lives in order, cleansing sin from our own lives and walking closely with your Son. We want to be pleasing to him so that when he comes back, he can say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And then we're going to enter into the joy of our master. So bless us now to that end. We ask in Jesus' name.